This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. What is it that makes a living body conscious? Indeed, What is consciousness, and are there different types of it? These aren't new questions. The mind-body problem, as it's sometimes been called, has been discussed for centuries. But Professor Eva Jablonka has come at it from an interesting angle. Much of her early work was on epigenetic inheritance, which poses questions such as whether learned behavior can be passed on from one generation to the next. And that has led her to think about whether it's possible to take an evolutionary approach to consciousness. Born in 1952 in Poland, she emigrated to Israel in 1957 just as a child and is now based at the Kern Institute for the History of Philosophy of Science and Ideas at Tel Aviv University. In 2019, she published The Evolution of the Sensitive Soul, Learning and the Origins of Consciousness, which explored the transition from non-life to life and the transition to minimal consciousness. And her next book will be titled Picturing the Mind. So, Professor, let's just start with that issue I mentioned. How do you distinguish, how do you go about distinguishing between life and non-life? When we're thinking about life, there are different, it's very, very difficult to define what life is. And I will not go into the very large literature on this subject, but one of the things, one of the people who have suggested a way of thinking about life in a productive way from an evolutionary point of view was a chemist, a theoretical chemist, one of the great system uh, uh, system, uh, system theory in chemistry, uh, Tibor Ganti, a Hungarian. And what he suggested was that the first thing we have to do is to come to characterize life. This is not enough, but this is a starting point. So let's say we want to understand what uh, life is and what the consensus about the characteristics of life is. Not to define life, we can't do it, but, but to characterize it in such a way that if we find something with these characteristics on another planet, we will say with some confidence that it is likely to be alive. So he suggested several life capacities, such as maintenance of a boundary, metabolism, stability, information storage, regulation of the internal milieu, growth, reproduction, and irreversible disintegration, death. He said, look, this list of of capacities, if we find something like with this list of capacities, let's say now on uh, Mars, 
well, people would be very, very excited indeed if some, some if an entity with this capacities was founded, they will be pretty sure that it's alive. However, this is not enough. This is not a de- this doesn't give us really an understanding of life of what life is. It's like a shopping list. So what Gandhi did was he tried to understand how what kind of mechanisms, what kind of processes, what kind of structures must exist which give expression to all this, that instantiate all these uh, capacities that he has listed. And he built a model, which he called the chemoton, which showed that it is possible to construct a very, very, very simple, relatively simple system. Of course, this simple system is not really so simple, but a kind of toy model, a caricature almost, of certain processes that together instantiate all these capacities. Now, he identified one property uh, within this uh, within this system, property that once that he, that we call we Simona Ginsburg and myself call the transition marker, the evolutionary transition marker. It's a property that when it exists, it means that all the other capacities must be in place already. And this, the capacity that he identified, was unlimited uh, unlimited heredity. That is the ability to produce a very, very large number, a vast number of hereditary of hereditary variants within the, the the system can have many, many, many variations, and there is some subsystem, the hereditary system, that can generate all this many, many vast number of generation, much, much larger than than the number of environments that the entity or its lineage is likely ever to encounter. So again, if we find such a system with the capacity for unlimited heredity, if we even if we didn't find the living system as a whole, but even if we just found unli- something that we are sh- that is an indicator of unlimited heredity, then anywhere in the universe we would be able to reconstruct or reverse engineer on the basis of this capacity the simplest system with all the properties that characterize a living system. So on that definition of unlimited heredity, that would mean that obviously a human would be a living thing, and also a vegetable would be a living thing. And a bacterium will be a living thing, yes? Yeah. It will be a living thing. Now, if you have this kind of system, but but the system, so you can say, but look, a virus is also, accord, has an unlimited heredity system, but it it is a parasite. It is an obligatory parasite. So will you call it alive? Won't you call it alive? Well, I will call it alive once it is within the context of, of a, uh, within the right kind of context, which in this case would be a context of another living cell. It is not in its. It is a secondary kind of uh, system. In the same way, you can have an unlimited heredity system, which is, for example, a kind of genetic algorithm. A genetic algorithm can have many, many, many hereditary uh, manifestations. You build it like this. But it itself, of course, is not uh, alive. And if you reverse engineer from this to the system, the system itself, for example, the computer chip in which it is instantiated, is not alive. 
but it is a secondary result of some kind of living system which built this computer system and built and installed this unlimited heredity. So, so actually, so, so actually, that that an algorithm would have some qualities of life, some qualities of life. It yes, but it will have some qualities of life, but it is not alive. Mm-hmm. It's not enough. Life is a system's property. You cannot reduce it to a certain to one property. It is a system. The 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 cell is alive, not the DNA. Okay, so so we've now got some sort of idea, uh, you know, suggestion of how you distinguish between life and non-life, and and then, well, first of all, on that, do you agree with that, or have you taken that bit forward on life and non-life? Well, we we thought that this is a very good way of actually addressing a, a very very difficult question without forcing ourselves to have a, a definition. We don't want to. We we can characterize consciousness. To define it is as difficult as it is to define life. So, with and we thought that this kind of approach, an evolutionary approach that is looking at the transition from non-life, from non-conscious to conscious mode of being, just like Gandhi did with non-life to non-living to living mode of being, is a very is a promising and interesting kind of approach to a very very difficult. Uh, problem and it can give us some insights into what consciousness is. You know, evolutionary biology is the most powerful uh, theory in biology that we have, and the only entities that we know that are uh, conscious are living entities. So it is a good idea to understand what consciousness in living entities is. And if we, since we're talking about living entities, let's take the best theory that we have, evolutionary theory. Yeah. So, so let's go back a step then when it comes to the consciousness, non-consciousness issue and start with the characteristics, because you said there were characteristics in life, non-life. So did you identify characteristics in, in consciousness? Well, what we did, uh, we spent a whole year trying to figure out how people, what different people uh, thought about uh, what characterizes uh, uh, con- minimal consciousness. We're talking about minimal consciousness. We're not talking about, you know, the ability to think about thinking or the ability to do this podcast or something like that. We're talking about the ability to feel pain, for example, or pleasure, or fatigue, or uh, and other very basic feelings. The ability to actually see something rather than just respond to wavelength to to have the feeling of something touching us rather than just have a response to pressure right so this is what we're talking about so we're talking about minimal consciousness and we went and looked at the at uh, what the philosophers of mind what uh, psychologists what uh, a lot of, uh, you know, many, many different people from many disciplines th- uh, think about consciousness. What they, and we were trying to find not what, what, not what the differences between these approaches were, but what do they agree on? What is something, again, a, a list of properties that if an entity would express this, would manifest these properties, we would say, well, let's treat it with some kind of respect it may well be that this is a sentient being. So, so you know, from this we so we compiled a list of properties, and among and I can give you this list if you want. 
Yeah, that would be interesting. And let, let, let's just then try and apply it afterwards to a few examples. But yeah, what, what would the list be? So, for example, uh, you have a uni- when you see an apple, you see it as both round and and red, and uh, with a certain and you can identify not just sh- shape, color, smell. All all these things come are perceived together. So there is some kind of perceptual percept unification and also differentiation because you can not only see something as a whole but you can discriminate between different holes so there is integration of sensory stimuli that are stemming from the body and from the world as well as from the relationship between the body and the world and then you have something that uh, people call global accessibility and broadcast so what you have is that different systems sort of come together So information from sensory, motor, memory, and evaluation system is integrated. And it creates this uh, integration process lead to the construction of cognitive representations that enable comparison, discrimination, generalization, evaluation, and all this inform decision-making. So you have integration, and then there is an output to some uh, to sort of consumer systems that lead to the ability to respond and to to respond to this uh, to this uh, very complex integration processes another thing that people are talking about when they think about consciousness is that consciousness has some kind of temporal depth they there there is integration of percepts over time so in the words of psychologists uh, and conscious animals must have something that is called working memory. The, the present, the present moment is not kind of infinitely an infinite point between past and future. It has sort, sort of breadth. It has a duration. And this is something that people from who are thinking about consciousness from many, many different perspectives identified as a very important central property of consciousness. Another thing that uh, people think about when they're thinking about conscious uh, creatures is that conscious creatures are not like machines that you just give them an input and they give you automatically an output. They are, fl- they are flexible value and attribution, goal-directed behaviors. So perception and action are evaluated as rewarding or punishing, but this can be flexibly changed and updated. And there are representations that an animal forms between an action and its outcome. And it also forms a representation of an outcome, of a goal that it wants to reach, which informs it as to what action it has to do. So animals have beliefs about what to do. They have desires. They want to do this because this thing is rewarding. So there's goal-directed behavior. There's also... uh, all this, the, the, the properties that I'm listing are, are connected to one another. They're not totally independent. But there, there is a level of, a certain level of independence between them. Another property which is very important is selective attention. There is target selection and action selection that requires selective exclusion and selective amplification of signals that emanate from the body or from the world. And there is something that people call intentionality. It's a 
word that uh, means in the philosophical jargon something like aboutness. But it is easy to understand it simply as some kind of representation, a mapping of the world. So you map the world. When you see the tree, there is some kind of sensory map of this tree in your brain. So, and there's mapping of signals from the world. You map your own body and you map the relationship between the world and your body. And the last point that I want that is very, very important, the fact that it is the last doesn't mean that it is not central, all of them are very important, is that there is a self-other distinction. And this happens from a certain point of view. So there is a stable perspective from which the system, the animal, constructs model of the world and of the body and respond to changes in them. And such a system is able to distinguish between a stimulus that is the results of its own action and an identical stimulus that is not the result of its own action, that is independent of its own action. And this is very, very important. It can also learn that something that it does has a particular effect, but this effect can also happen without it doing anything. So it can distinguish between these two states, and this can inform the way that it acts in the world. Now, I think that most people would agree that this list is a rich list, that if, if we found something like that, if we find a creature or an entity that uh, shows these uh, capacities, we would think that it may well be conscious. We wouldn't be sure, but we will, we will think that it is a possibility. It's quite a demanding list, as you say, a rich list. Um, and I'm just yes. I'm wondering how many beings would qualify. I mean, humans would, right? Uh, sentience, ability to well, respond. That's... to... You're not sure about that? No. Well, I'm. I am not as unsure. It's not just humans. Before, I mean, when you're looking at this list, you say, "Well, it's very, very rich list." But so is the list of life. It's a very rich list, right? You need metabolism, and you need closure, and you need replication, and you need growth, and you need regulation, and you need you need a lot of things. Yes, life is a complex system. Consciousness is a cons- uh, uh, is is a is a complex system. I mean, complex uh, creatures are very complex systems, so it cannot be very simple. But it it transpires that if you are looking and if you can identify the transition marker, some one capacity, the one capacity from which you can reverse engineer a system that has all this rich list of capacities, uh, then you can actually try to see if you can identify who has this who has this marker capacity. And the marker capacity that we identified is something that we call unlimited associative learning. Yes, but can I just sort of slow you down a bit? Because, you know, there's, there's a lot to take in here. And so, so, as you say, the unlimited associative learning that you've identified would be the equivalent of the unlimited heredity in the life non-life. That's right, yeah. yes. But let's just go yes. back. On, on this, you know, you've got sentience, ability to respond, understanding actions and outcomes, um, some sense of mapping the world, a sense of self almost, you know, that you can do something, but someone else yes. could also do it. So would, would let's just go through those. Would 
you know, if I said, if I said a to cockroach. you, a, yeah, or a jellyfish, a cockroach has it. A cockroach, has jellyfish. It. We don't. No. Okay. I I would say jellyfish. No, doesn't have all this. Mm-hmm. So that is why we needed one thing, you know, to go through the list and to see that whether or not an animal has all these capacities is very, very, very difficult. Does a cockroach have a sense of? Does a cockroach have a sense of of it how, c- committing an act and other you know others being able to commit the act and uh, th- with the same outcome? Does it have that sense of self? It can distinguish between an act between an outcome that is the result of its own action and an outcome that comes independently of its own action. Yes, it can do that. How do we know, how do we know that? Because there are experiments that show us that it can do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so There are behavioral experiments that show us that many, many animals, surprisingly, can make these distinctions between an outcome that is the result of their own action and an outcome that is the result of uh, of something that is independent of them. I'll give you an example. Even an animal that doesn't have many other of the capacities can do it. A worm that crawls on a kind of rough surface, There is a, it, it has a sensory input from this surface, but it goes on crawling. If you, and because the, the sensory effect of this rough ground is the result of its own movement. Now, if you give it the input of this exactly the same rough ground, but it is not the result of its own crawling, it will freeze. It will not, it will not crawl. It will freeze immediately because it is, because, and so it recognizes the difference between the very same input, the rough sensory input, when it is its own, then it inhibits the reflex of freezing, and when it is independent of its own action, it freezes. The reflex goes, the reflex, uh, the reflex manifests itself. So even in this very very simple case, we we know we we have this distinction. This is not enough. We need the whole the the whole that the whole list more or less will be in place. Just having this one capacity is not enough for identifying a system, an entity, as being conscious in the same way that just one of the capacities in the list, in the Gantti list, in the life list, is not sufficient. It's a system property, again. So you'd say a worm um, probably qualifies on all, it passes all the tests? No, it doesn't. Uh But it passes this one. Right. What does it fail on? Most of them. (laughs) It it cannot integrate very much. And that's why we needed something much more simple, you know, than this very complicated list. So this this marker, which is similar to unlimited heredities, unlimited associative learning, which is a domain general kind of learning that allows animals to do uh, several important things. And, uh, but, you know, not... What, what what they can do is, for example, discriminate between different uh, between complex patterns, both of action and of uh, and sensory patterns, patterns that they hear or see or uh, or uh, uh, tactile patterns. The other thing that they have to do is to have a flexible uh, uh, system that will sort of update the value 
of uh, outcomes. An outcome can be uh, so and prioritize different out, outcome, uh, diff, di, uh, different possible outcomes. Because an animal in the world is sort of uh, faces many many different challenges, and it has to decide at any at any point in time what to do, what is more important than what, and also to update things because something that was pleasant in the past can be now nasty, and vice versa. So this kind of system has to be in place. You have to have something called trace conditioning, which is the ability to understand that there is a predictive relationship between a stimulus which is neutral and a reward, even if there is some time, if, even if they don't overlap in time. So you have the predictive stimulus, and then let's say five seconds later, you have the reward. And even when there is this lag of time, the animal can keep it sort of in mind and this relation, and it can learn that the neutral stimulus is predictive of the outcome. It's called, in the uh, psychologist jargon, trace conditioning. And the, th- the fourth characteristic that we, demand, that we demand is that the animal can create some kind of chain of chain of learning so that it can learn one thing and on the basis of this thing it can learn a second thing this is related also to its ability to have a flexible uh, value system just to be clear we're now on to the characteristics or the elements of unlimited associative learning your sort of second level definition of consciousness right that's right so now we don't say that uh, unlimited associative learning is consciousness in the same way that we won't say that a system of unlimited heredity is life, but it is a marker of life, unlimited heredity. And this is a marker of consciousness. So if we find an animal that shows these characteristics, we say, we think that this is uh, conscious. And the reason that we think that this is conscious is that we can, if you take these capacities and you actually look and see what does it demand what does it mean to have that, this discrimination ability? What does it mean to have trace conditioning? What does it mean to have a, a, a sensitive value system? What does it mean also, another thing that is very important, to be able to act in a goal-directed manner, that is to, under, to distinguish between outcomes that are the result of your own actions and your learning, the learning of, the, you learn that a particular action has a particular outcome, and you can have the same outcome without any learning history whatsoever, right? You can learn this thing. So you have representations of, out, of action outcome as well. If you have these systems, if you have these capacities, then all the, if you have these pos- this ways of learning, this unlimited associative learning, this requires that all the capacities in the list are actually, have actually to be in place. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit complicated to go through each and every one of these, but we did do it in the very big book that we wrote. And it seems like it's a good marker. We're not saying it's the best marker in the world. Maybe somebody else will come up with something better, but it's a good marker. And now we can ask ourselves, well, this is something tractable. This kind of capacities, trace condition, this, this discrimination learning, the ability to, to, to have flexible value system, second order learning. Which animals in the world show this ability? Who can do it? And 
So we went into the literature again, and there are 150 years of, uh, even more, of, uh, of work on learning in different groups of animals. Huge, huge lacunas, because there are lots of animals we don't know very much about at all. But there are also many animals about which we do know. So we just looked at the literature, at what we have, and asked ourselves the question, well, which animals can do this? Which animals can learn in this open-ended way, in this domain-general, open-ended way? Which animals have unlimited associative learning? And we found that almost all vertebrates can do it, including fish, from fish. We know more about fish than amphibians, by the way, and more more about fish than amphibians, reptiles, but fish can do it. And, and, and uh, as far as we know, also amphibians and uh, reptiles can do it, although we have less information about them, but they can do a lot. Uh, birds can do it, of course, and uh, mammals can do it, and humans and mammals, of course, we can do it. And so, so we have the vertebrates. In, in addition to that, we have some uh, arthropods, that can do it, some insects, for example, honeybees, uh, cockroaches, crickets. They seem to be able to do it, but again, we, we don't know a lot of a lot of groups. We simply don't know anything about, and there are groups that where we know just that, that simply were not tested for all these capacities. And among the mollusks, mollusks, we we have the uh, the squid the octopus and the cuttlefish, the uh, cephalopod mollusks that can learn in this kind of open-ended way. So we know that there are at least three phyla, three animal phyla that can uh, that, uh, that have uh, unlimited associative learning, vertebrates, uh, arthropods, and mollusks. Maybe not all of them, but some of them. And this can also tell, and since we now have identified the kind of capacities, learning capacities that are necessary for unlimited associative learning and by implication for consciousness, we can also ask the question, well, what are the the brain mechanisms and the brain structure that implement this? What should we look for in the brains of the vertebrates, of the arthropods, of the mollusks? Can we identify structures, because we expect to identify structures and processes that can uh, implement it? And indeed we can. We can find the kind of processes and brain structure that implement this kind of capacities. Not fully. We, there's a lot we don't know about the brain and don't understand about the brain, but in a rough, we have a kind of good rough idea about the kind of structures and processes in the brains of these different animals, especially in the vertebrates and the arthropods. We know much less about the cephalopods. I think you better then help us with that straight away. What, what, what did you notice in the brains of these beings that are, you think, conscious? I do, I'm not saying that the, there's something in the brains that is conscious. What I'm saying is that the brains of these animals have structures and processes that implement the ability for, for example, for memory, for a dedicated memory system that you need in order to store complex representations. It's not that you notice things in, in, in scans of brains or anything like that. It's, it's just the capacity. Yeah. Uh, yes. 
and you can so you can identify the memories the, the the kind of memory system that are necessary for storing complex representations and you you can identify a quite complex reinforcement value systems that can lead to the prioritization of different outcomes to the evaluation and prioritization of different outcomes you can uh, you can identify sensory integrating units that form sensory uh, mappings you can identify motor integrating units that form motor mappings of the of prospective action and of the body you can ident- identify regions in the brain when all this come together right so you identify the actual structures that are there that are nece- that that have to support this capacities of the animal and if you can do that if you can say well we now know what kind of brain areas more or less we are looking for then we can ask questions about fossils because behavior doesn't fossilize unlimited associative learning doesn't fossilize but brains do sometimes we are lucky enough to have brains that do fossilize do the brains of ancient animals show us that they actually had this structures if we say that fish have them for example among vertebrates and fish fur first arose during the cambrian about more than 5 500 million years ago do this fish have this structure and the answer is yes they do so it seems that uh, that unlimited associative learning and consciousness in the vertebrate lineage evolved at least 500 million years ago uh, during a period that is known as the cambrian explosion where all the body forms that we know have sort of suddenly in term in geological terms sort of appeared although of course we had create all kinds of animals before that too do you think this research has implications for ethics and animal rights yes i do i think uh, you know we have to recognize that all this that a lot of animals that we tend not to think about as conscious as a sentient probably very likely are and then the question is you know what do we do with this knowledge what how how does it what difference does it make and knowledge does make a difference because once we recognize the fact that there are that for example uh, the the squid the octopus the uh, the the cuttlefish are conscious beings we have to we treat them differently from let's say cabbages that are also alive but uh, to the best of our knowledge don't have any of these capacities and uh, the question is what do we do with this and this is also it's not just a question about uh, i mean our moral obligations our moral commitments are related to what we know about the world and but this is not the only thing that shapes our moral obligations our moral obligations are also shaped but by our culture but by our own priorities I mean we all know that cows are sentient animals it doesn't stop a lot of people from eating them and it doesn't make a lot of people too worried about the horrendous way in which uh, they're slaughtered so it's also a question of not only knowledge but also of what we do with this knowledge and how we treat this knowledge but history tells us that once we sort of recognize this kind of uh, uh, that other animals are conscious and probably feeling 
although they may not be feeling exactly in the way that we are. This does change the way that we treat them in the long term. I mean, one of the great things about what you're doing is, I mean, this is yeah, you're just explaining this whole implication for ethics and animal rights, but also yeah, which which takes you away from your precise field of study, but also in in researching you are drawing on such a wide body of knowledge, aren't you? All sorts of biology and other studies going back a long time of different animals and different uh, areas of, of human knowledge. So it, it's, it's a wonderfully broad thing to be doing. Yes, I mean, I think I'm, I feel very privileged to be able to do it. I'm a theoretical biologist. I don't have a lab. <laughs> I mean, I did my PhD in kind of experimental biology, but I realized I'm better at theory, <laughs> so I'd better do that. And uh, because, and I love, you know, I, I love philosophy. I'm a geneticist by training. So, I, and I have the great privilege of, uh, you know, living my life as an academic with an academic job that allowed me the freedom of investigation. Completely do really what I wanted to do. So it's also a great privilege. And and this this series is is couched in terms of the future of. So in your case, now we've understood some of what you've been working on. How, how do you see the future of this area of inquiry? Where's where's it going next? I think that it's going in several directions at the moment. So there are people who are uh, there are a lot of people who are very interested in uh, the technological implications of this kind of thing. So, for example, can we build conscious robots? This is one direction. And, uh, and a lot of people, especially from robotics and from computational uh, kind of uh, theoretical computational co- uh, bio- uh, computer science, are very optimistic about it. Biologists are less optimistic about it. Because they are more aware, I think, of the constraints and of the affordances, the possibility of, a- of action that, the, that biology gives organisms. So, you know, sensitivity and vulnerability are very related to each other, for example. And everything, there's this strain. So, can you have an conscious organism that is not very sensitive and very vulnerable? I'm not sure you can. So does it mean, for example, that we have to think about robots that are made of soft materials, vulnerable materials, something like organic materials? This kind of questions are questions that come from mainly from biologists, from people with more biological kind of attitude. And I think that the answer is probably yes. And even if not, if the answer is no, we don't have to do it in this in the way that biology does it, we have to learn a hell of a lot from biology because at the moment, the only conscious being of which we are aware are biological beings. So we must understand them and we must understand what, what, what the kind of stuff from which they are made affords. Things in the world are not kind of neutral with respect to the stuff from which they are made. So this is one question. Another question, for example, is the question of development. Biological creatures develop step by step. They don't sort of spring into being totally mature, right? They have to develop both behaviorally and morphologically. 
And the fact that there is this sequential development in time, gradually building up cumulative kind of development of all kinds of capacities, what does this mean? Does this sort of give all kinds of affordances that wouldn't that simply are necessary for this entity to develop a really broad domain general kind of learning capacity, perception, and so on, decision making. So, you know, these are questions that we have that biology sort of directs people to to ask, but people are very, very interested in uh, in in creating or thinking about or modeling uh, artificial consciousness. And there are journals devoted to this topic. And there are, there are people who are doing research on this, a lot of people who are doing research on this. So, And there are people who are very worried about this research because we have a very bad record as human beings because uh, with respect to other sentient creatures, yes, we don't treat them very nicely. And, you know, what will happen to the robots that we will build if they will ever be conscious. This is something that worries people. And again, people write about it. For example, Thomas Metzinger, a German philosopher, is very, very worried about this capacity, about this possibility. And he thinks that we should have a moratorium for, for some good years before we go ahead and start developing this kind of entities. So that's one direction. Another direction is you know, expanding and connecting different consciousness. So we know now that we can, that people can be connected to the brains of people, can communicate with computers, and that people can have all kinds of devices which extend their sensory capacities. For example, they can feel the gravitational uh, field of the uh, the uh, electromagnetic field of the earth i'm not following that how can you explain that well there are people who are sort of cyborgs you implant some kind of device which is connected to the nervous system that can measure for example the electromagnetic field of the uh, of our planet so they can, so they can feel it they can feel it yes right and in theory you can sort of connect people to the same computer so that their minds will be sort of connected in a way that they are not at the moment. We are connecting to each other through words, through uh, facial expressions, through the normal biological kind of miracles to which we are used. (laughs) But there are other possibilities. We can, in theory, connect to other people through computers and create a kind of... and maybe to other animals too, through computers. In virtual and we in virtual realities, and add to that a virtual reality. So you know the consciousness that will emerge from this kind of processes of connecting different minds together through technological devices like huge computers that can and implants within the nervous system of people can change consciousness. In what ways? We don't know. We think in a kind of slightly simplistic way. We say, well, we'll be more clever, maybe. We'll, uh, we'll be 
more aware, we will be able to sense things that we don't sense at the moment. We may be able to use our bodies in ways that we cannot at the moment even hardly imagine. But this is more of the same. Maybe there are other things that will happen that we can't even at the moment imagine properly. Maybe our whole sense of self will be so very different. Maybe we will not have any more an individual sense of self once we go into this kind of communication. Or maybe the opposite will happen. Maybe it will be a much more developed sense of self. You know, we don't really know, but people, again, are thinking about it. And it's not completely in the future. I mean, it is in the future, but it's not a fantasy. These things are within reach. And I believe that in 40, 50 years, it will be very much part of, I don't know, everyday reality, but the reality of many people. And we have to think about it. You know, you have to think about it. What does it mean, for example, to do a crime in virtual reality? You know, all kinds of questions that we don't even, and this is, this is just, you know, scratching the surface. There are so many questions that we even don't know how to, what to ask. Yes, exactly. So you're getting into the law now. And gosh, well, there's, there's obviously enormous amounts of work for you still to do. It's ne- never, you know, when I started doing this, it's my friend, Simona, who dragged me into this uh, consciousness business. I was doing epigenetic inheritance and evolution, which is, uh, in comparison, <laughs> a very. I, I felt very much more comfortable about it. And although I'm a biologist, I'm not a neurobiologist. So it took me 15 years to sort of get on, on top of that. And, uh, it, you know, it took her a long time to convince me that we actually can say something new about it and that, you know, it's I can, I, that we can do something that is worthwhile in this huge area and the huge subject. But the more I think about it and the more I learn about it, the more I realize that there is so much to do. Well, thank you so much for explaining uh, to the point to which you've reached, you know, as, as far as you've got so far with this absolutely fascinating uh, work. Uh, we're very grateful to you, Professor Ava Jablonka. Thank you very much. Thank you.